Welcome back to another episode of the Turkey Season Podcast, a very, very special Dust Bowl edition of this show. I, I wanted to do volume two of the Ben Lee podcast. Um, I just got back from Nashville at the NWTF show. I, it was just an absolute whirlwind. Um, I didn't have a lot of time to to, to do the editing. And, and the main reason we're, we're, we're not running that podcast this week is I had two guys reach out to me um, that I just cannot leave out of this next episode. So I'm 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 going back to the to the interview well, uh, if you will. So I, I they're they're going to enhance the story so much. Um, very very personal touch uh, from from those two two guys. Uh, so I cannot wait for you guys to to hear that. So so be patient. Uh, there's more coming uh, from from the Ben Lee Life of Ben Lee Volume Two. Uh, will be up here very shortly. Uh, so today, Dust Bowl episode with the wild turkey doc himself, Dr. Michael Chamberlain from the University of Georgia. <laughs> this is such a cool podcast. If, if, if you are a turkey hunter, which, you know, I'm assuming you are since you're listening to the Turkey Season podcast, you've heard of the wild turkey doc. You've seen Turkey Tuesdays on the internet. If you haven't, you're missing out. Check them out on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, check out all the content that Dr. Tamerlan has, has put out over the years. Uh, WildTurkeyLab.com is his website. Just an unbelievable resource for the wild turkey hunter uh, in this country in 2024. So please check that out. Support him uh, and listen to him whatever whatever way you can. This was a really, a really neat episode. Um, if you've listened to this, is this is not the same stuff that he's always talking about. We dive into some of his, uh, some of some of you know, who he learned from, and and he has the, very much the same passion that I do. Uh, and if you're here listening to this, I'm, I'm assuming that you have that, or you're going to develop it. Uh, I, I want everyone listening to the show to have a firm understanding of our past, of our heritage, why that is important today, and how we have formed the identity as modern turkey hunters in 2024. This is one of those podcasts where we dive into uh, the the history of of the research, the history of Mike Chamberlain. There's he tells a hilarious story uh, about having a wild animal in his house. I will not ruin that. So, very cool podcast with Dr. Chamberlain. Please check out turkeyseason.com. See all of the uh, the stuff that's going on there. That site is evolving every day. Uh, the map, the map is completely updated with the 2024 spring dates across this country. So check that out. Uh, you're not going to be disappointed. So that being said, thanks for all of the support. Do me a favor if you if if, if you were listening to the show, please share this with one of the turkey hunters that you know in your life. Share this on social media. Follow me on social media. If you so choose Paul Campbell 322, search Paul Campbell on Go Wild. Uh, check out the turkey season on Instagram, the turkey season on TikTok. Uh, whew, man, what a good show with the wild turkey doc, Dr. Michael Chamberlain. So it's it's been it's been doing really well. So I'll, so I, I'm, I'll mix in, I'll have like kind of the you know the look back episodes, um, and then I'll mix in. I call them Dust Bowl episodes, which I I'm I will I thought I was super clever with that name, Mike, the Dust Bowl. <laughs> um, thank you. <laughs> I'll take your laugh as a uh, a staple of approval there. 
uh, if you will indulge me. But um, so I've had like Dave Owens on and and, and the Spring Legion guys, and, and I've had some some just really interesting folks. And it's it's um, it's not like the hey man, what, like how do you find turkeys? How you know what kind of call should I? it's it's not about that. Like the way that I started my interview with Dave Owens, which I'm sure you know him. I played him the first video that he ever put on YouTube from 2008, completely forgotten all about it. And that's how we dove into the interview. Um, so it was just about, I don't know, man, it's, it's about everything, but pulling the trigger, if that makes mm-hmm. any sense. Right. It's, yeah. it's a, and I think it's, it's underserved. I think it's a fascinating topic when you talk about just like us, like as Turkey hunters past, present and future. So that's what it's about, man. And it's been, um, people are people are listening which i i i'm very very humbled by so good enjoy it yeah man good to hear. so i um who so who did who did you learn from when you were when you were a student of of wildlife biology so i i studied under bruce um for graduate school i studied under bruce leopold who at the time was so Bruce and George Hurst worked together at Mississippi State. They they were close colleagues. And I got there about the time George was winding his career down, but but I was Bruce's student and Bruce is a predator ecologist. He really wasn't a turkey guy, but he did a lot of turkey research with George. And that's kind of where I got my start and then I start, you know, of course, I was reading things from Love It and Larry Van Gilder and um, Bill Porter and all these people that were doing really cool research or had been doing cool research. And, you know, that's that's what I wanted to be. (laughs) You know, I I read their work and thought, you know, that's what I want to do. In fact, I can remember as a graduate student. Um. Dr. Hurst said, hey, um, feel free to come in my office and and make copies of any literature that you may want. George had had every manuscript that had ever been written on wild turkeys in a series of file cabinets in his office. And this was, of course, back in the day when you would, you know, go get a hard copy and walk it downstairs and make a photocopy of it. And I remember making hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of copies of articles, peer-reviewed articles, and then sitting in my office or sitting at home or sitting at my field sites and highlighting, you know, taking a pen and writing an arrow, you know, in a margin and making a note, hey, this is this is cool or or pay attention to this or compare this to that, you know, that type of thing. And, and honestly, I don't know, I don't know where all of those papers are. Um, in the series of moves I've done since those many, many days ago, that was 30 years ago. Uh, they're gone. They're, they're somewhere. Uh, and I never, I don't know what came of those file cabinets that George had in his office, but there were, you can't imagine how many papers were stuffed down inside of manila folders, you know, anybody had it alphabetized. So, you know, if you were interested in habitat use, you just go to the H, you know, and open that drawer and there was a, (laughs) 
you know, dozens and dozens of papers on habitat for turkeys. Yeah. It's like the cartoons. You open it up and they just come shooting out. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure. So the, those guys, you know, like Dr. Hurst and, and um, some of the other folks that at that time, I mean, were they the researchers that were kind of that really involved in like the, the restoration efforts back in the 50s, 60s, 70s? Or was are they kind of at the tail end of that? They were at the tail end of that. Yeah, the the folks that were doing, you know, the, the restoration guys, like you mentioned when we first got on, Wayne Bailey. You know, Wayne was was con- was considered kind of the godfather of turkey restoration. He was he was one of those guys that was that was doing the field work. You know, he was moving birds around himself while also studying turkeys and working for a state agency and and doing the all these other things the the folks that i worked with you know at, at when i came on nwtf's project you know target 2000 was the was the, the goal that everyone was working towards and i started in grad school in 1993 and we were almost at our target 2000 you know so restoration in many ways was in most states, not all states, but in a lot of states, it was winding down at that time. And, and we were moving on to the next target, if you will, as, as a turkey community. And yeah, now fast forward where we are now and the, the landscape has changed quite a bit. Yeah. When, when you were sitting in the woods, hiding in a ground blind or whatever it may be with those, with those papers, what do you, do you remember some of the things that, like stuck out to you that, that you marked down this is cool or, or, or pay attention to that. Was there anything that was like, like pivotal, I guess, in, in your development as a grad student and a researcher? Yeah, there were a few things. I mean, one was, one was the attention to detail of the behavior of the bird that people like Lovett Williams exhibited, you know, someone who, who had observed the bird in captivity in the in the wild that hunted the bird that was that was speaking in his writings and in his his audio from experiences that were multifaceted not i'm a turkey scientist but i'm a turkey hunter i'm a turkey scientist I, and that that type of that type of cross pollination if you will attracted me. I really, I really appreciated the, the information that I would read knowing that this, this person is, is speaking or writing about this bird from looking at it from different perspectives, different, you know, through different lenses. And I've emulated that in my career because that's how I grew up. I was, I was a turkey hunter, right? You know, as a kid, I'd, I had no idea where I'd be sitting right now talking to you knowing, you know, back then I, I just knew that I liked to chase stuff in the fall and spring and, <laughs> and shoot it and get my mom to cook it and, or catch it and get my mom to cook it or you know anything I could do. And, and to now look back in retrospect, I think those types of people, the, the folks that looked at the bird, as a turkey hunter as and as a turkey scientist that really resonated with me and that's kind of in many ways who i've become because i 
I do so cherish hunting the bird first and foremost. Yeah. When I was a golf course superintendent, there were, you know, I, one of my mentors told me he's, you know, he's like, there's several ways to see a golf course. And, you know, for you, it's, you know, you, you see it as the superintendent and then the golfer sees it from a different perspective mm-hmm. and the guys that are really good. I don't know what that is. Did you see that? Yeah. The balloons. The, um, I don't know. doesn't matter. But that was, that was, um, you're meshing those two, like how you see it from like a, a turf grass science perspective and how you see it from like a guy playing the golf course. I guess it's kind of, kind of similar. Um, well, and you know, when, when, when Turkey started declining, I can remember, well, when they started, but I can remember as a graduate student, you know, going and hunting and hearing birds in every direction. Mm. And then as, then I can remember as a young academic, uh, going and not hearing birds in every direction. And then I can remember the realization that I just went and didn't hear a bird at all for three hunts in a row, you know, and, and while I'm doing that, I'm also looking at numbers, seeing that we're, we're, we're seeing some problems here and my own observations are paralleling what others are saying in my world. And, and that to the point we just discussed, I mean, I was looking at it as a superintendent and as a, as a golfer. And I was seeing both sides of the equation and, and my own observations were paralleling what I was seeing on paper or on a computer screen. When, when you started to see those, those parallels and you started to see, uh, you know, and this is obviously a huge, a huge topic, but like, you know, some of those alarming trends what did the kind of the old guard at the time what what was their observations what was their feelings or takeaway from it i mean because a lot of those guys had been through a lot of ups and downs and just as as, as hunters and, and as researchers right what what were they saying like the you know the james earl kenimers and wayne bailey's and levitt williams of the world what, what what was their take on on your observations if you shared those with them well what there was a there was a there was a disconnect in time because, you know, when I, when I came on the scene as a nobody, Wayne Bailey was no longer, you know, he was retired and, uh, Lovett Williams had, had for the most part was no longer doing research. Lovett had, had gotten towards the later start stages of his life, unfortunately at, at that time. And, um, and so I, I came on when things were good, you know, I, I got my start when thing, well, we thought everything was hunky dory and, and, um, and so by the time we collectively realized we had some problems, which was around 2008, 2009, 2010, those, those guys were, they were, had moved on to other parts of their life or they unfortunately were no longer with us. And, and so there has been a disconnect in time. There's been a transition. We went through, and I talked about this at the convention quite a bit. We went through this period where we really didn't pay much attention to wild turkeys. There was very little research. Uh, and myself and one other researcher were doing quite a bit of what was being done because 
we thought we were in good shape. We, we turned an eye. We thought turkeys are restored. They're at all-time highs. Everything's great. Let's put our attention elsewhere. And then right under our noses, these things were occurring. And, and so, yeah, there, there, there had just been a kind of a disconnect in time. And I honestly would love, and this is something that I'm, I'm doing a project on my, on my own now. And, uh, I'll start posting some of this information soon, but so as part of my, my lab, my wild turkey lab website, I'm, I'm going to start archiving historical pieces of information from, from researchers and, and scientists mm-hmm. that came before me that whose, whose works are particularly impactful and who a lot of people may know little, if anything about like Wayne Bailey and, and love it Williams and Henry Mosby and some of some people that studied turkeys many, many decades ago. And I think it's really interesting as I read their writings, what they said back 40 years ago or 50 years ago, when, when they wrote, Hey, I've been around, for instance, you know, Wayne wrote about, I've been here when there were no turkeys, like, I can remember as a kid that they didn't exist. Like you couldn't go find a turkey to hunt, which is why we hunted squirrels and rabbits and grouse. And and I've seen turkey populations come back from the brink. And, and in his case, he participated in doing, you know, and making sure that happened. And and now I've been here when I could go out and kill over 200 turkeys. You know, Wayne harvested hundreds of turkeys and wrote accounts of each harvest uh, in a journal. And, um, and I read those writings and as he warned us, Hey, I've seen this, I've lived it. If we don't pay attention, we're going to live it again. And, and, and he was prescient in many ways that he he talked about the popularity of Turkey hunting and how it was going to potentially skyrocket. And when it did, you know, there would there would be an increasing uh, demand on a, on a supply. And I mean, these things that now we, we talk about as a society, you know, and here's, here's guys that lived it and suspected it would come. And they wrote about it decades ago and, and here we are experiencing it. Yeah. Did when, when, when you review that, I mean, perspective or hindsight is always great. Right. I mean, when, when you look at those writings from those guys, you know, 40, 50 years ago at this point, were they expecting that to be quicker or were they, you know, were, did they have the foresight to say, okay, this is going to be a decades long price process, or did they expect that in you know, the mid eighties? No, they, I think they, they wrote about it in generalities, okay. you know, you know, love it did as well that they saw what was happening in our world, you know, and, and I think back to, to 1980s, you know, I was a teenager in 1990s, 2000s, and how much different this world looks than, than it did then. But, but think about from their perspective, you know, they, you know, someone like Wayne who had, had lived, you know, through the forties, fifties, sixties, seventies, eighties. Think if you're not a historian or if you're, you're 25 years old listening to this podcast and you go back and look at how that our world changed then, 
you know, these guys knew changes would, would continue. And they were, I mean, think about how the world changed during those decades. Not even the turkey world, just like just the, world. the world of humans. Yeah, Just the world point. and how we interact yeah. with each other and the things that went on during the 40s, the Second World War, 50s, 60s, you know, 70s, 80s. And then think about what they saw. And they knew our world would continue to evolve rapidly. I don't, I've, I've, I wrote about this in a, in a post that I have archived that I will post soon. There's no way that these folks could have realized where we would be today. I mean, the, the advent of social media and the technology that we have and the, I, I don't think even the sages historians could have predicted the rise in popularity of turkey hunting and, and where it is now. And, and they, they knew it was coming, but to your point, they, they spoke in generalities about it. Uh, I would, I would love to be able to pick their brain, you know, and, and say, Hey, here's a, here's where we are now. What do, what do you, what do you think <laughs> looking back now, you know, when you made these predictions? Damn that father time, right? For sure. What, when, so when you, what do you take from that? When you, when you review their writings, when you kind of look at their perspectives collectively, I mean, what, what, do you, what do you take from that? Uh, I, I think appreciation for where at that time the turkey world had gotten the, you know, many of those, of those, I'll call them pioneers, if you will, wrote about being thankful for the resource and what it took to to put those birds on the landscape and, yeah. and how much went into the re restoration efforts. And, and yet they then spoke of the challenges that we would face in the future. And I think what I took collectively from their works was that we've done, we've been so wildly successful and we've done something that is a true testament to foresight and ingenuity and work ethic but if we rest on our laurels and we take it for granted, it's going to bite us. Yeah. And, and they, that's kind of the collective vision they, they all had. Do, do you think that modern turkey hunters have already taken for granted or for, have forgotten the work that was done over the last, I mean, it was 70 years in, in the turkey restoration process and research and all like just that culmination of work. I mean, do you think that I mean, we have, incredibly short attention span so i get it but like i mean do you think that we've already forgotten all of that hard work and have lost that i mean gratitude for the generations before us i think in some, in some cases yes which is why i'd like to start alerting people that that these people that these these pioneers if you will that they first of all that they lived second of all yeah. that they worked their entire careers to do to, to produce the populations that we're enjoying now. Mm -hmm. And it was an extremely difficult road that they took to get there. And I think in many ways, I, I suspect, I, I don't suspect, I know there's, there's tens of thousands of Turkey hunters that know nothing about these people. Yeah. They, they, they don't know what these people went through and what it took oh. to, 
if you read some of these historical writings, in fact, I, I was just fortuitous enough to to interact with a man who interviewed Wayne Bailey. It it had to be one of the last interviews that Wayne made. And he spent several days talking with Wayne and he provided me with the transcript of of, of his notes actually yesterday, ironically, that we're having this conversation mm. and reading some of the things that Wayne said. Um, it's just remarkable how much effort he went into to get his hands on turkeys to move them in the state of West Virginia or in the state of North Carolina or to help people in other states put their hands on turkeys and move them from one location to the other. He would, I mean, he would keep these turkeys in his house in a spare bedroom. He was so dedicated to getting the birds restored that he would do anything to do it and to make it happen. And that's amazing. I think people need to hear that, that there, there were these, there were these that walked before us that wouldn't take no for an answer. Yeah. And they just did it. They just made it work. It gave me chills when you said that one take no for an answer. And like we we talked about at the beginning of this, this is this is very much the heart and soul of this project that I'm working on. Is I think that that it's as modern turkey hunters, it's unacceptable that we don't know, you know, the likes of Levitt Williams and Wayne Bailey and Ben Rogers Lee and Dick Kirby and all of these people that that went through just so much effort and energy to create the modern turkey hunting culture that we have i i i refuse to let that to let that die and let that those memories and all of that effort fade away and that's my goal is to kind of package that up into something that's entertaining right that people can absorb that content and be like oh well shit that wayne bailey guy was pretty cool thank you yeah. Wayne, or yeah. whoever it is that's like yeah. that's 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 my goal so i will promise you whatever i can do to help what you're doing and promote what you're doing you let me know and um you know, I'm, 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 cause that, that, that's, that's what, that, that's just so important. And that, that, that we talk about hunting heritage, right. All the time, like at nauseum, we talk about heritage and, and people look at heritage as like what's in front of them, right. Father, grandfather, friends, whatever it may be. But I like the broad topic, right. Big picture of all of our collective heritage. And, um, you just nailed it, man. I, I don't, it, we need to do a better job of like respecting that and, 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 and people it. are interested in it. I've I've talked to I've talked to people recently about this little project I'm working on, and it re, it resonates with people to know that that there were these pe there were these these folks that just said I'm going to make this happen, and they just worked tirelessly to do it, and it they just dedicated their lives to it, and if they had not done that. We wouldn't be sitting here having this conversation about turkeys because we would not have had the turkeys that we have now. And um, and when you learn a little bit about these, you know, some of these people, I think it, you know, we all grow up differently, but I grew up very similar to a lot of these people. They, you know, for instance, but Wayne grew up in a very, very modest, you know, household his family didn't have a lot. Uh, they made ends meet. He did a lot of small game hunting, and that's how he cut his teeth. The thought of hunting a turkey was something he he dreamt about. He you know because there were so few birds, and he knew he wanted to to work in 
quote unquote biology, but he had no idea how to get there. And life just kind of gave him some opportunities that, that he, that almost fell in his lap. But when it, when they fell in his lap, he grabbed them and refused to let go. And he worked his tail off to, to be successful. And he, he had an ethic about him. He just had an ethic about him that, that no, like I said, no, wasn't an answer. It, it, no, was just a, an obstacle to work around. And that's, you know, that's very similar in many ways to the way I, I came up as I was never the smartest person. I was never, uh, in a room full of colleagues, you know, I was never the one that would knock your socks off with brilliance, but you'd be hard pressed to outwork me. And that's, so when I read, you know, when I read Wayne's story, it resonates with me because I can reflect back on myself. And even now, you know, you can, you'll be, you'll find me in a room with a lot of people that are smart, smarter than I am, <laughs> but you'll rarely put me in a room with people that work any harder. So that's, you know, I think when people hear the stories that these men and women have, I think they'll, they'll really, it will really resonate with people because they'll reflect upon themselves. No, that's, that's, that's great. What's the, there, there's a saying like where hard work and passion intersect greatness is there or something like that. Yeah. 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 You've, you've yeah. heard that. That's, I have. And, and, um, that's, that's it. Now I, I do want to ask you, have you ever had a live wild Turkey in your house? I have not. <laughs> Wayne Bailey. We're going to make I that happen. Not. No, I had a, I had a live Bobcat in my house. Whoa. Uh, <laughs> I did. Tell that story. I, yeah. So when I was in grad school, uh, we had a captive carnivore research unit at Mississippi state. And I, a lot of people may not know this, that, that kind of follow what I do, but I, I've done a tremendous amount of research on, on mammalian predators and have published a lot on bobcats and coyotes and raccoons and gray foxes and, um, and wolves. And, but anyway, so at the time, Bruce, Dr. Leopold, and some of his students were captive rearing bobcats, bottle feeding them. And what you would do is you would orphan those, you know, you would remove the kittens from the female and you would bottle feed them. And what you were trying to do was to acclimate them to humans to where they could be used for educational purposes when they were kittens. And they could be taken to groups and not, you know, act like a wild cat. Right. Um, so I don't recall the circumstances that surrounded this particular cat, but I do remember the conversations with my wife when it became apparent that we would have a bobcat in our house and that we would have to be bottle feeding it at night. And because like a, like a baby, you know, they have to eat constantly. And I can remember, I can remember we had this we had this blue couch that my mom had bought at like a junk sale for like 50 bucks or something. We, and that's, I mean, we were poor. We didn't have anything. And I can remember this blue couch sitting in the little, the little quote unquote great room of this tiny little apartment we lived in. And I don't even remember the little cat's name, but um, you would, 
you know, you would bottle feed it and then you would, you would palpate its, its rear end to get it to go to the bathroom. So I, I'd take it outside and I can remember my neighbors, you know, looking at me like, what the hell is this guy doing? You know, I've got a wild bobcat and I can remember the, the last next to last day that I, I had this little thing, this little hellion. I think it was a week or something that we had to take over for the other, you know, the student that was leading this. She, she was on vacation or she had a death in the family or something. Anyway, I opened the door from coming in outside and I threw the little, little cat. It was a little female. I kind of tossed, you know, dropped her on the floor and she took off running like a little, you know, kitten would. And I turned around and shut the door and I hear that, you know, and I, my, I turn my attention to my couch and this little cat is shredding the arm of this couch, just shredding it. And, and I'm thinking to myself, Oh my gosh. So I go, I go over and I grab the little cat, take it off and put it in a, in a, uh, a, a little dog kennel that we had. And my wife never knew it. She, she didn't see it, but she didn't see it happen, but she obviously mm. realized that it happened. True story. When we sold that couch, I sold that couch to a student that went to LSU in 2000 when we moved to Baton Rouge. I sold that couch to a, a student, and when he came to my when he came to my garage, I saw him glance at that the arm of that couch, and I think I saw it for like you know ten dollars or something like mm. that, you know. And, uh, cause it was well-worn. Let's just put it that yeah, way. Yeah. Um, I said, a bobcat did that. <laughs> and he looked at me, he goes, I don't know what your audience or what, you know, explicatives or yeah, whatever, but he, he goes, no, he goes, no shit. <laughs> and, and, and I, he just, and I was like, I'm serious, dude. A bobcat <laughs> did that. And, and he, he looks at me and he looks at my wife. She goes, it's true. Bobcat <laughs> did that. And he was like, oh, I gotta have this. So, uh, he, he took the couch. Yeah. yeah. That's funny. When, when you called your wife and you're like, Hey, we're, we're going to have a Bobcat stay at our house for a while. She just like, oh, Mike, she, she, <laughs> she knew. just like, go. She, yeah. My wife, this is another true story. So I'm stuck in the field for eight months at a time. Right. Mm. So we, we had just gotten married and, and I'm gone for eight, literally we get married. We ne- we didn't take a honeymoon. We went back to, to, Mississippi and I went straight to the field to trap birds. And part of my job was to pick up predator scat crap, right? And she would come to visit, you know, because I would analyze it. I would I would put it in mesh bags and wash it and 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 sort the prey remains because we were trying to figure out, you know, how much turkey and everything were in these these predators' diets. And we, uh, she would come to, to visit my site periodically and, and we would ride around and pick up bobcat and coyote crap. And that was kind of our, our day, our day night. <laughs> and she used to, t- she still tells people that she's like, look, I, it, it, nothing this guy says or does really re- surprises me anymore because we've done it all, you know, we've really could done she, it could all. Could she identify the different scat types? Oh no, she no, didn't she didn't care. She didn't care that much. Oh man, that's funny. I, um, you know, it's, it's funny. Every, every podcast that I do, I, I've, I've learned to go into it, especially, um, this Turkey season podcast with, with 
just good conversations, right? I don't, I don't, I don't have any notes. I've, I've never prepared notes for a podcast, um, which I don't know if that's good or a bad thing. Um, and I did not have Bodcat tearing a couch up and like <laughs> Mr. and Mrs. Chamberlain collecting wild in the woods. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I did not, I did not have that, yeah. uh, in yeah. my, <laughs> yeah, on yeah. my, How could on you? my list. How could you? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I hopefully hopefully that's the first time you ever told that story on a podcast. I'll be there. It is. I've never I've <laughs> never voyage. I've never been asked about turkeys in the house because I've never been prompted to discuss Wayne Bailey. Yeah. You know. Yeah. So um that's pretty comical Man. that that he did that. I I would have loved to have done that. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I I I cannot I would, like, I would, I would absolutely do that. If I found like an injured, you know, like, I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm going to save this wild Turkey. And then 20 minutes later after the house is destroyed, I'm like, okay, you went and get out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Already yeah. Killed, killed my cat. And uh, apparently this was a spare bedroom in his house that he, you know, he would, he would put them in before he transported them to another location. And, and we've had to do something similar before, but we, obviously we don't let them out, but you know, if we, if we shoot, you know, during restoration, if you were to shoot or net in the afternoon, by the time you could get the birds to a release site, it would be during the night. Right. And you couldn't release them. So you'd have to keep mm -hmm. them overnight. Well, I don't think Wayne liked to keep them in the boxes, the transport boxes. So he would just turn the boxes loose <laughs> in his house. <laughs> and then he'd have to go collect them again. He'd, he'd have to go collect the box. Yeah. Oh yeah. my gosh. I, I, I've, so I've been on one trap, not, it wasn't a trap and transfer. It was, it was a research project in Ohio. You, you, you and I have talked about mm -hmm. it and the amount of poop that was oh, in a yeah. box for a while was, was astounding. Yeah, and these things were in the box like for like two hours, and I can't imagine what a, a, a bunch of turkeys in a room would be like. It's got to be. I can just imagine place. waiting it, like opening the door and walking into a room with about seven or eight toms, <laughs> <laughs> and and what what that would entail to get one, much less all of them back into boxes. I, I mean, like we obviously Wayne didn't have cameras, but can you imagine like that's like pay per view worthy. It's like oh, Michael sure. Chamberlain versus eight pinned up. That would be classic. Gobbler. <laughs> it would be You're classic. just getting your face kicked in for 20 minutes. Yeah. 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 <laughs> oh man. So let's get back to the, to the good stuff. What, so I, I love what, what you're doing with kind of the, the researchers and, and just the effort that went into to that. What, what are, what are some of those? And obviously we've talked about Wayne Bailey and, and we originally wanted to talk about Lovett Williams. Um, what are some of the some of the researchers that that like people just have to know about? And it, it could be someone that that we've never even heard about. What's what's someone that just impacted you on a, on a very personal level that, that we haven't talked about yet? Uh, a guy named Bill Healy. Uh, Bill Healy. He's he's still alive. He Bill worked most of his career studying turkeys. He um is largely responsible for a lot of the information that we know about their behavior. He imprinted birds to himself in, in mm -hmm. captivity and observed them, uh, in a scientific setting. He, if you go back and look at, at Bill's, you know, career, he published papers, some of the first papers on using telemetry to study wild turkeys that, you know, radio telemetry. He published articles on what 
what poults eat, uh, their diets, how important insects are. He published work on how to produce brood habitat. You know, what, what does it take to produce quality brood habitat? Um, he took those turkeys to, and I didn't know this until I, I went and spent several days with, with Bill and his wife at their home in West Virginia. He used to take those turkeys to TV shows, you know, his imprinted birds and walk them around on, on TV. And he would take them to, to presentations with, with kids and, you know, trying to, you know, make people appreciate this bird. He, he followed those birds and watched their behavior because they accepted him as, as one of them. And, um, he's just a fascinating man just sitting and listening to him for several days and taking notes really impacted my career because it made me realize that there are people out there that have seen things that I haven't seen, that they've experienced things that I have not. And that's important to me because there aren't many Bill, Bill Healy's out there. You know, there aren't many people that have done the thing. In fact, there are very few. Lovett was one. Lovett did some of that same work. Um, and Lovett's gone. So, you know, there, there's a, there's a record, there's a, a voice, a narrative that's lost except mm-hmm. for, you know, in Lovett's writings. And, uh, and some of the things that Bill recounted to me when I met with him those three days, he never wrote. It's not written anywhere. It's not, you know, for the public consumption. It's in his own notes. It's in his own wow. field records. And um, that's the kind of thing I think is important for people to to realize. So, for instance, the realization that when you imprint a turkey to yourself, it assigns you a sex that's irrespective of, of what sex you actually are. So he was noting that, you know, some of the birds they imprinted would clearly assign him as a male and some would assign him as a female and same with his wife. And she would actually carry these poults around in her apron when she was cooking kind of like Wayne Bailey. Can you imagine? Yeah. You know, here's a grown woman with turkeys, you know, on her shoulder while she's cooking dinner or in her apron and, in her kitchen because when you were imprint when they were imprinting them they the birds needed to be around them all the time so that they could they could imprint and and having him you know explain that if if a tom assigned you as a male you were in trouble because when he got to be mm-hmm. older he was going to fight you at every instance and if he assigned you as a female he would You're put right. on the yeah he'd put on the love right. parade for you you know <laughs> Um, and strut and drum and, and display and you know, things like that, that, you know, I'm, that was fascinating to me. Just absolutely fascinating. I mean, did, did Bill tell you like what, what his, what he felt like? I mean, that, like how, what was in his mind when he like kind of connected that? I mean, that's, that's, that's something I didn't even think was possible. One imprinting on turkeys. I've only heard that. Um, from Joe Hutto, I think is the only mm-hmm. guy I've heard about right. it. Um, but I, I like, I didn't know, like, I didn't know that, that was a thing. 
I mean, what when he connected that, I mean, his head just had to explode, right? Yeah, and you know, honestly, man, I I think it was just something he did, you know. So to him, it was just as normal as you and I walking down the street. Wow. Um, and I I imprinted quail chicks to myself, and you know, for a research project that I had back years ago on Bob White's looking at, at chick foraging and success. And, and it is interesting when you become mom, you know, when you become the, the thing they're looking up to, to when they recognize your voice, they recognize your calls, you know, being able to open the door to a brooder and start walking across the room and they all follow you, you know, and they're running because they don't want to be left behind. Yeah. That's, it's interesting to see that behavior. And, but I, I think, you know, Bill just lived that he lived it for years. Um, and he was a, he was a, such a steward for the bird. He, you know, there's a man that, that saw that, okay, we need to understand how to use this telemetry stuff. We need, we need to understand how to be able to track this bird remotely and how to obtain data and how to, to interpret it. And this is how the birds react to, to having this package on their back. And here's, here's how I'm going to go watch them. So this is what he did. It's part of what he did. He would take these imprinted birds out and they had VA, they had radio packages on their backs. So he could see how they reacted to the packages. He could walk around with them. And then if they would get lost, he could find them, mm. right? I mean, these are adult birds walking around. He, he could go find them. And, you know, just the foresight it took and the wherewithal to keep, to that's not simple work. That, you know, captive animals and, and doing that type of work is not simple. And mm. it has a lot of challenges. And, and, and then to see his career, I mean, Bill ended up writing, you know, what is considered in many circles is kind of the recommendations that have guided the setting of spring hunting seasons for decades. I mean, he wrote, no kidding. yeah, I mean, he, he was asked to write a chapter that is widely, you know, cited as the chapter on wild turkey behavior. And he wrote it. Um, and of course he relied on a lot of other people, you know, incited dozens and dozens of, of other articles, including some of Wayne Bailey's work. But, you know, here was a guy that is largely credited with understanding a lot and describing a lot of what we now know about how this bird behaves. And I suspect many people have never heard his name. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm probably your above average turkey nerd. I've not heard his name and um, I'm glad you glad you talked about him. I I've got two two questions and and the first one is what what drives researchers and biologists to 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 go through the effort and go through spend the energy and do all of these you know crazy things living with turkeys imprinting on turkeys and and trapping them and putting them in a spare room like like and and some of the things that you've done and and your modern colleagues have done like what what's the is it curiosity is that like the like mm -hmm. the root of of all of your work i think just a a natural 
yeah, intellectual curiosity along with a passion for wild things and wild places and our environment. And I think to be honest with you, a little bit of a screw loose, you know, I mean, (laughs) for sure, (laughs) you know, what's interesting is in my world, a lot of, and I'll include myself, a lot of us got into wildlife science because we were not people people. We were, you know, we were animal people. We were outdoors people. We were, we appreciated the outdoors and the respite that it offered and going and sitting on a stump with a 12 gauge in your hand in silence, trying to kill a squirrel. That was a good morning spent, you know, and, And I think these men and women were the same, that they, you know, they had the curiosity, they had the passion, they had the fuel, but they also had a real appreciation for the outdoors and, and, and wild animals and what they offered us. And they, I suspect, which I do perhaps saw a bit of themselves in, you know, in the, in the work it took to, to fuel the engine, if you will, of restoration and, and I think to their credit, they saw what the future could look like if somebody would step up and just do the work. And yeah. once they started doing the work, it became part of who they were as, as human beings. And, and that's kind of what fuels me. I mean, part of me is uh, there's a small part of me that would like to quit this afternoon and just walk. But there's, you know, the greater part of me is like, hell no, Mike, you're not, uh, uh-uh. you get, yeah. you get up tomorrow and keep plugging. And, and I also think, you know, that intellectual curiosity is, is not just, you know, being curious. It's, we want answers. You know, we want, we want to pose questions that are difficult and we want to get answers, understanding that there's no truth, right? There's just, there's information and information and science change as you learn more and more and more and being, you know, being willing to embrace the fact that you don't know some things and that, that uncertainty is, is, is fuel. Yeah. Damn it. I, I've got to find an answer to that. We, we need to understand that. So let's just keep, let's keep plugging. Yeah. I'm not going to ask you about the, the Turkey decline. There are, you've been on a hundred podcasts. People can, can, can listen to that. You and I have done one where we talk about the Turkey challenges. Mm -hmm. What, what I want to ask you is you said you started noticing in 2005, maybe is when you started noticing and seeing some alarming data, but even if that data was just, I'm not hearing as many turkeys as I did. So you've gone through just kind of like this roller coaster of, of declines and, and agency people coming at you, hunters coming at you, National Wild Turkey Federation folks coming at you. So, and, 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 and the challenges have really ramped up over the last 10 years. Mm-hmm. So how, how have you changed and evolved professionally, like your, your thought process to tackle those challenges? I think first and foremost has been a willingness to open yourself up for criticism because 
we need to have difficult conversations and, and we need collectively as turkey hunters to see the information. We need to see the science. We need to understand what's there, what's not there, what we know, what we don't know. And to, to have those conversations requires me and, and I guess others, but particularly me, since you're asking me to put myself in a situation where I'm vulnerable, um, to, to say, I don't know, I don't, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that, or we don't know, or we need to understand that. That's something that I see a change in, in myself when I look in the mirror over the last 10 years for certain is this, this kind of willingness to, I'm going to step into the bully pulpit, if you will, and be, you know, willing to have conversations that in 2010, for instance, I would not have had, or certainly would not have relished as I do now. And I do, I relish these conversations now because having them tells me somebody cares. Yeah. Tells me that somebody wants answers as much as I do. And somebody has the same passion that I do. Certainly they may have a different perspective and that's fine. Um, so that's, that's, that's my answer to that question. Yeah. When I back to the, to the golf course, when, when I was coming up in the superintendent world, we, the GCSAA, they would, you had a really good, strong mentorship program. And, and I'll never forget my, my mentor, his name was Jess Thompson. Great guy. I remember my first head job, I was, I was getting my face kicked in. I mean, people were just like, you know, ah, the golf course, this, the golf course, that, and you did and, and, and I was, I remember talking to him like, man, they're like, they're always angry at me. They're always like mm. questioning everything. And, and I'll never forget this. And this is one of those moments, man, you be coachable, learn, right? And, and he said the, the people are angry because they care. And then and people are angry because they believe in you, right? And mm-hmm. the moment that they're not questioning you and they're not talking to you is the moment that they've given up on you and you're going to get fired at any minute. So he's like, you know, and, and so I, that, I you know, I, I've taken that as like when people are frustrated, it's because they care. And I care as much sure. as anyone. When, and you care as much as anyone about wild turkeys. So I like having those difficult conversations. I don't shy away from them. Um, and I definitely look to guys like you and Brett Collier and Mark Hatfield, um, Mark Slash, and a lot of these guys to, to, to tell an idiot like me, like, okay, this is what's going on. And um, I appreciate that, that you've and, and some of your colleagues have, have taken the, the initiative to communicate with the, with the hunting public because you don't have to, you don't have to open yourself up to that criticism. You don't have to open that yourself up to that, um, you know, the, the judgment and just the nasty things on social media. It's a blessing and a curse, right? Social media. And, and, mm-hmm. and I thank mm-hmm. you for, for, for that. Um, what do you think is, is kind of coming down the pipeline just in terms of like research to, to help answer those questions. And you, you, you talked earlier in this about the, the gap between, um, you know, the old guard that was there before you. And then there's just kind of like this, this dip almost is what it sounds like. And, and mm-hmm. to where all of that experience was, those guys were aged out. They weren't doing it anymore. They, they had passed away. You know, what is like modern Turkey hunting researchers, what are you guys doing to, to have that continuity between the generations? Well, um, you know, the continuity in my in my world is the graduate students that that were training 
and and we hope that you know these young people these young men and women that are conducting these research projects in the field that will complete terminal degrees you know from universities will continue to cherish the bird and they'll they will go to work and populate our agencies and go to universities and work diligently to to continue to study this bird that's the you know that's the the conduit if you will to the next group is is people like you know i can look across the hall at patrick whiteman's office and and meet with some of my other students nick and nick and aaron and Paige, and and i can see that okay here's some young people that are are in a position to carry the torch to you know to the to the next down the road if you will once i once i step away and um if we don't continue to train people to study this bird and care about the bird you know who will that's kind of the way i look at it and you know as far as the next thing down the road i mean i I can look and see the end of my career facing me Um, it's not that far down the road and i have other things that i want to accomplish with with what time i have left and and so I look and I say, okay, in the next handful of years, what do you need? What's pressing that, that, you know, you don't want to walk away until you, until you know, and there's a few things. One is, you know, we're working on some ways to try to understand how many birds are out there. We desperately need to develop methods for estimating abundance so that we know kind of how many birds we've got on the landscape. Um, and I have I have some work ongoing, quite a bit of work in that actually, and and we'll get there. And then the other thing is, you know, at least here in the South, where populations have declined so precipitously in many areas, we need to understand what the future is going to look like. So if we if we're producing X number of birds and we're harvesting X number of birds, can we sustain that? And if we can't, what needs to change? Do, you know, what is the most appropriate harvest rate in a population? How much higher does production need to be to sustain our current harvest? What's going to happen if we see production continue to decrease? Or what happens if we see it go, you know, come back up to levels closer to where we were, say, you know, 15 or 20 years ago? That's the scenarios that we need to be able to understand so that we can inform agencies as to what does the next decade look like? What's, what does the next two decades look like? Because the math doesn't add up for some of these populations, some of the populations that we, and I say, we, I'm not just saying Mike, I'm, I'm talking a number of researchers across the country have data on populations that if you look at the data and you predict out what's going to be down the road 30 or 40 years, it's bleak. Mm. So we need to understand, okay, if where we're headed in 30 or 40 or 50 years is not where we want to be, then what, what input points need to change? And if so, how much, you know, if, 
do we need to tweak harvest a little bit? Do we need to identify ways where we can, um, where we can increase productivity? And, and, and we know we need to do that. The question becomes how, well, in the absence of telling an agency, and this is a, this is a doomsday scenario, but I'm, I'm using it as an example. If you were to tell the general public and a state wildlife agency, if, if you don't do something to change these things, many local populations are going to be gone in 30 years mm. or 50 years or whatever the scenario is, then you've provided a point where this is going to happen if we don't change. And that to me is is desperately needed so that we can understand, okay, look, folks, if we, if we don't put our attention towards this, this is where we're going to be a few decades from now. Is that where we want to be? Well, of course not. Well, then we need, we need to figure out a change of path here. Um, when, when do you start answering those questions collectively? And I mean, turkey we're hunters, working on, researchers. We're working on that population model yeah. right now. In fact, I met with, I met with, two student, well, a student and another faculty member this morning at length about it. We're, we'll, by the end of this year, we'll have something on paper that is, that's, that this is not just a, a modeling exercise using things pulled out of the air. I mean, we're using the most spatially and temporally comprehensive data set ever collected on wild turkeys for this, wow. for this, this model. Can you talk about like high level, what that is, what that means? It's if basically, can, yeah. I mean, we've been studying, we've been studying wild turkeys across the Southeast in many, many populations for way over a decade. We have literally thousands of birds, millions, millions of GPS locations, thousands of nests, hundreds and hundreds of broods that we've tracked. Uh, survival of adults, survival of juveniles, nest success. I mean, all these these pieces of data, mm-hmm. harvest rates, uh, survival of toms, all these things that you put into these these mathematical models that predict out. Okay, using all of those, here's how many turkeys we're producing. Here's how many are surviving to a month. Here's how many are reaching the breeding population, et cetera, et cetera. You, Models are only as good as the data that go into them. So the strength of a model comes from the strength of the data. And we have the best, the the most comprehensive data set that's ever been collected on this bird. And so now this is the time we have to do this. I'm not stepping (laughs) away until we produce this tool because that's the tool that agencies need to be able to understand what's the future look like in their state. Because then, you know, the, a lot of states collect pieces of this information on their own, but they don't collect all of it. Well, if they're mm-hmm. collecting pieces of it, they can take their pieces and insert it into the model and then make changes to these other things, you know, harvest rates. Maybe they increase harvest in response to increasing productivity that's the the quote-unquote what-if games that can be played, and that's where we need to be. Uh, the waterfowl world, it, I mean, you, you may hear about it, you know, adaptive harvest is, is, you know, kind of this notion that 
we're going to we're going to create these tools that will inform us. And what we're talking about is not really per se adaptive harvest. It's just what are these populations going to look like in the future? And if they don't look like we want them to look, then we're going what inputs can we change? Yeah. And how much do we need to change them to make it make an impact? Yeah. I guess the data is only as good as the information you put into it. And, and I guess w- what's really important is the decisions that are made based off of that data. Right. I mean, that's, that's the, the end result is the decision-making, right? Yes. And unfortunately, you know, as if you were a fly in the room, you know, at the convention, there were, there were conversations, you know, unfortunately, science and data and biology don't always drive the ship when it comes to decision making in fact i would argue at least in the turkey world that it is largely hasn't driven the ship for decades until more recently and and you would all all that we is say we as a as scientists all I, all i can do is provide information to decision makers and then it's up to them to make the appropriate decision. And as, as you know, and everyone listening knows that, you know, biology is not the only input into a decision-making process. There's social pressures and political pressures and financial pressures and all of that factors into the decisions that are made. All I can do is provide the data. I didn't realize how much Hunter emotion and like, agency staff had to manage people as much as they do wildlife. I, d- I did not realize that until I started diving into you know, talking to guys like you and, and, and the agency personnel and, you know, across the country. It's, it's, um, I did a podcast the other day and, and someone asked me, they're like, you know what, you know, what can turkey hunters do? I'm like, the biggest thing you can do is take a deep breath, trust the science and give our agency personnel a little, a little break. You know, when it, when it's, when it's time to make really tough decisions, don't freak out on Facebook. That's what that's what you can do. Okay, and I don't know if that's accurate. I, mean, I feel like that's accurate information. It is accurate. Um, I, think I call it I call it social license. You know, give <laughs> give the agencies point. a little bit of grace, slack. Yeah, just calm your jets a little bit and understand yeah. that. I, I just had this conversation earlier today with with a state coordinator, a state turkey coordinator, who is preparing to walk into a room of decision makers and and justify their recommendations to change a season yeah. framework and our our discussion centered around the idea that this change that this agency is considering is not the fix it's not the solution it is a stopgap to slow this process down to where we can get some of the, the, the emerging science in our hand and try to, to write this ship differently. It's, it's just a, it's a slowdown mechanism because the data suggests if we don't slow down that we're not going, it, we're going to see worsening conditions moving forward. So, you know, this person's analogy, and, and he's right, is I've got, I have to be able to convince, make to make these decision makers understand that what we're trying to do is slow down this process of decline. Yeah. And in so doing, 
try to maintain hunter satisfaction while the science emerges and allows us to to better understand what we might be able to do at larger scales to impact reproduction and th- these other things that we know are part of the part of the equation. Oh, good luck to that person, whoever they are, wherever, whatever state boardroom they're going into. Um, I'm sending sending good thoughts their way because that's so that daunting. It's so yeah, daunting. I, yeah. I've been to some of our wildlife council meetings here in, in Ohio, and I've spoken at at many of them. Uh, on behalf of turkey hunters and, and agency personnel and in support of, of the things that they're trying to do. And, and I've, I've heard some of the, the really negative, negative people that you get, uh, especially like in Ohio, we've got some CWD issues in the deer, deer world. And that is like as contentious as you can possibly imagine. So um, I have a ton of respect for, for, for those people that they go in to justify what they think is, is best. And it's not a popular decision. And, and for what it's worth, I will support in any way I can uh, those people just because I, I understand the, the tough decision making. And I understand like the, the, the quite honestly, like the pain that people have to have to put up with um, as turkey hunters. So, Mike, last question. Why is it important for modern turkey hunters to to learn about the researchers and the research, the work that was done in, in, in the past, why is it important for us today in 2024? So to one, learn about that and two, appreciate that and, and caveat of that, how can we apply that and, you know, into like our modern lives today? That's a big question. No, it, uh, I, I have a pretty, pretty succinct answer is if you understand where we've been and you understand what it's taken to get here, then you will have a better appreciation for what the future looks like and how you need to be a part of, of, of the solution, if you will. Recognizing what came before you and what these people, the, the, the work that went into creating the populations we enjoy and where those people came from and where the, where, what they saw in their career from having no turkeys to having turkeys everywhere. And now people like me that have come in at the tail end of one and am now living the other era, if you will, I think it, it's important that we know where we've been so that we know where we're going and we don't repeat the same mistakes that got us to where Wayne Bailey and, and Lovett Williams were in the early parts of their career and they were studying turkey populations that were they didn't exist in some places. I mean, they were studying populations in certain areas and in other areas there were no turkey populations at all. Mm. I think that's important for particularly younger hunters to be able to see that they are growing up in an era that is very, very fundamentally different than where we were 40 or 50 years ago. And I think that would offer perspective. No. I'll lie to you. Last question. When, what do you, what do you think your legacy will be in, in the wild turkey world? <laughs> Pissed people off. <laughs> 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 I, I don't, um, I don't know. I, I, I'll tell you, I, 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 this is what I hope my legacy will, would be was that, you know, 
here's a guy that that worked tirelessly to obtain information and disseminate it to people uh, in a way that resonated with them because he wanted them to be able to care about the resource the way he did. Um, you know, a guy that trusted science and, you know, was willing to go out on a limb to explain it to other people. And that's, I mean, that's what I try to do every day when I get up is, you know, try to communicate what people like me are doing and why they should care. Um, I've never really thought about what, what my legacy would, would be honestly. Yeah. That's why I like asking that question to, to guys that have been ensnared in the world of wild turkey hunting or research or literature, whatever it may be. It's a, it's a very personal question. It's very reflective. And I, I've, I've enjoyed hearing you guys squirm if I'm being honest. Um, it, yeah, because and, you don't, but, you don't really think about, you know, how others view you or how, you know, when you hang the, you know, hang the baton up, if you will, how are you going to be viewed? I mean, you don't, I certainly don't think about that. I just put my head down and, you know, and go to work every day and, and hope that, you know, it's cliche and in many ways, let's leave it better than you found it type of thing. But I don't really reflect the, at this point on what my legacy will be. I, um, there's still a lot of work left to do. Oh, that's what gets me out of the bed. Yeah. Yeah. Love it. Mike, where can, where can people find you online? If, if your, your website, social media presence, what do you have coming down the pipeline for people to, uh, to absorb the content from you? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I post on social media all the time on Instagram and uh, Twitter. My handles at wild Turkey doc, just wild Turkey D O C all one word on Facebook. If you just search on my name, you'll find it. Um, I launched a website called wildturkeylab.com back in May of 23. And that, um, we just actually announced a partnership with NWTF at the convention the other day that the Federation supporting the website. And nice. I've got everything I've ever done on wild turkeys is on that website or, or is in the process of being put on the website. I'm, I'm talking every research article, every podcast, every social media post, every magazine article, everything I've done. But I'm also about to start including historical archives as well. Uh, we'll, we'll have all of the 12 National Wild Turkey Symposia that have been done since the 1950s. Those will be archived on the website along with kind of very generic write-ups from me, you know, three or four lines of what each article actually says in English, you know, and um, I'll, I'll have the content we've been discussing about these, these, these pioneers, if you will, and how yeah. they've, how they've changed our, our world in, in so many good ways. And then as I get time, my time just hasn't allowed it, but, but I, I will at some point go back and start including other historical works that I think are important to turkey hunters and turkey enthusiasts and how those works have shaped where we are today and at the end of the day when I step away I, I want that to be a living breathing being that you know there's this this permanent archive 
of all things turkey science that somebody can click on and search on whatever they're interested in and find science-based information about that topic rather than narratives or rhetoric but you know they can find something grounded in, in science that's amazing stuff mike thanks for your time not a problem man Thank you.